0: back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. So if, if you've been following me, you know I've been recently looking at black writers from the turn of the century. And, you know, about a year ago, I looked at a bunch of the Harlem Renaissance writers. And I thought this year I would look at, at a, a a writer's triumvirate, if you will, of, of black writers from around the same period of time, a little, you know, pretty much the generation before the Harlem Renaissance. And that, that, when I looked at Charles Chestnut and W.E.B. Du Bois and then James Weldon Johnson. And you can even go back and I already uploaded my episode on the autobiography of The Ex-Colored Man, which was a book I, I really liked and I, I had a lot to say about it. It's very short, though. Um, now, the collection that Library of America has on James Weldon Johnson First of all, it's important to say he wasn't primarily a writer. Like he was a lawyer, he was an activist, he was a musician. He actually did a lot of things with his life, and that that's what makes him kind of a fascinating figure. You know, Chestnut was much more like a writer and a novelist, a short story writer. Du Bois really much more of an intellectual. Johnson did a lot of other things with his life, and had he not, you know, done much writing, had he not written the autobiography of the next colored man. He probably still would have been known as a leader of the NAACP and a kind of a journalist and a lawyer for um, uh, an activist, I guess you want to say, of, of the turn of the century and early 20th century. So there's a lot to like about him, and I think he's worth looking at. But I have to say, when I had to read his autobiography, not to be confused with his novel, The Autobiography of Next Color Man, his actual autobiography is called Along This Way. You know, I'm just not really feeling it. It's not been, it doesn't happen to me much in this podcast. Of course, partially I've been choosing books I like and writers I really like. Um, you know, there's very f- little fat, actually, in the life of America, to be honest. And I don't want to say this is either. Certainly, Johnson deserves to be here. It's just, you know, this particular autobiography. First of all, it's very, very long. It's It's 500 pages or so. Um, and it's very detailed. It's four times as long as this really great novel, the autobiography there's Color Grant. So his real autobiography is four times as long as his fictional one and it's it's got a lot of detail. it's it's really rich in a way and it's just so plotting and so long and in that sense i don't really feel it but i will try to do my best to give it a fair review and and fair coverage it's going to take me about four episodes to do this though so um and actually I'm i'm going to do it only in four it's in four parts he broke this up into four parts even though it's closer to 500 pages than 400 i'm just going to break it up part by part you know i guess if i were to have put this collection together i i maybe wouldn't have included all of along the way i would have included black manhattan which we I think we get selections of in in the later part of this edition, and we'll look at the essays. And it, it I think the volume gets a little bit funner when we get to some of his poems and his his music and some of his more and some of his other kind of political writing. His New York Age editorials, for instance. But first we have to get through along this way. Um, but it is he does have an interesting life, and he I guess he's not as fun i guess his life is a little more squeeze a little more square than x colored man in his fiction and he you know he's he was an intellectual he's a lawyer so i don't know what do you expect but he he does but some of the things in autobiography ex colored man do have hints of in his life so he's it's not all drawn from it's not all drawn from his imagination there are elements that he draws from his own life especially his love of music and so of his traveling around and is going from New York city to, to Florida to the South that, that kind of stuff that happens in the autobiography that called man happens to, to him in his life. And he relates it here. It's just, I guess my criticism of this work is it's just so long and it's, you know, I, I don't know if it needed to be that long, but he really went overboard and documenting every aspect of life. That said though, there's some really great moments in here and some important moments. And I, I think as an intellectual person, autobiography as a study of someone awakening to to race consciousness i think it's a very strong work and just as someone who is struggling to find his place in the world and experimenting with different careers i think it can be inspiring to people in that way you know because he is someone who wasn't just satisfied with one job in his life he he did do a, little, a lot of different things and you know he's kind of a jack of all traits figure or maybe had a little bit of of Kind of that ben franklin style add you know like how ben franklin did a lot of things in his life he couldn't really he didn't stay with one thing for very long he switched to other things and he excelled at all those things james Waldon johnson does that it seems and he's very good at the things he does and he's very confident with himself and i, I think that's a strength of it it's it is about race but it doesn't dwell on race so much it, it really dwells on his life and to the degree it intersects with his consciousness about race or his politics, he talks about that, but you know, it's it's kind of above that. And it it is it's not quite above the veil, but it it strives to be at times. Okay, so part one of Along the Way is broken up into eleven chapters, and it covers his birth, his background, his heritage, his family heritage, up until the time he graduated from college in 1894. So it covers about 13 years. No, 20, sorry, 23 years of, of his life. He was born in 1871 in Jacksonville, Florida. He had a older sister, Mary Louise, who died before Johnson was born. I think died in 1870. So James Jim was born a year later. His mother was Helen Louise DeLitt, who was born in Nassau in the Bahamas in 1842 as a, a, a free woman. His father, James Johnson, was born in Richmond, Virginia in 1830. They met in New York City, married in Nassau, and eventually settled in Jacksonville, Florida. His older, her younger brother, I should say, younger brother was born two years later and his name was just John. So it was James and John, but he was usually called Rosamond and that's how he was referred to through most of his through most of his life. So he, he starts with his his family background, particularly on his mother's side in the Caribbean, in, in the Bahamas. And he talks about uh, what drove his his family um, to the United States. Quote, the prosperity in Nassau had collapsed at the close of the Civil War, and the great hurricane of 1866 had blown away its remnants. James Johnson stayed on until the spring of 1869, but he's been thinking of some time of returning to New York in the meantime, some American guests at the Royal Victoria had talked to him of Florida and its possibilities, especially its possibilities as a winter hotel resort. So he resolved to look the field over. He left his family in Nassau and went to Jacksonville. And then later on, his his wife joined him, and that's where James Johnson, James Walden Johnson was, was born. So the very first chapter is really about this background. It actually, the, the very first chapter of part one ends with the death of... Marie Louise, his younger sister. And so after as when he was born, his mother was teaching at a school for black children, one of the Freedmen's Bureau schools that Du Bois talks about and, and The Souls of Black Folk and some of his other works. His father were was the head waiter. So he's not from a, a particularly rich and well-off family, but he is from a family that that values education. And he's from an international family. I think that's important to mention too. Um, yeah both of his parents are African Americans, but one is from the Bahamas and there is you know the, the very different realities of race in the Caribbean and and in in Virginia where his father was born. Both were born free though at a time when when slavery was still the dominant labor institution in, in those parts of the world. Chapter two is really about his mother and about his early education and his but it's mostly about his relationship to his his mother and kids he contrasts us with his relation with his father which was much more aloof and intellectual compared to the more emotional relationship he had with his mother and we really get a sense that he gets a lot of artistic Interest and his creativity and his fascination With education from his mother Quote, my mother was artistic and more or less Impractical and in my father's opinion had absolutely No sense about money. She was a splendid Singer and had a talent for drawing One day when I was about 15 years old she revealed to me That she had written verse and showed me a thin sheaf Of poems copied out in her almost perfect Handwriting. She was intelligent and possessed a Quick though limited sense of humor But that limitation and her sense of humor was Quite the normal one. She had no relish For a joke whose butt was herself Or her children My father had a rare capacity for laughing even at himself. She belonged to a type of mothers whose love completely surrounds her children and is all pervasive, all pervading. Mothers for whom sacrifice of the child means only an extension of love. Love of this kind often haunts the child in later years. He runs back and again through all his memories searching for a lapse or a lack or a falling short in that love so he might in some degree balance his own innumerable thoughtlessness, his petty and great selfishness his failures to begin to understand or value the thing that was once like the air he breathed and in, and the searches in vain so we get a little bit of also mostly it's about his relationship with his mother and to a lesser degree his father but we also get his early education of some of the first books he was reading but it seems his father was a little bit more distant working as this head waiter not quite around as much Um, in fact he he has memories of going to the hotel to see his father and his first memories of his father are more from associated with the hotel than the home and i think that's that's kind of an interesting thing now we have a childhood portrait in this book it's just reproduced i guess it was in the original and he's wearing a dress he's probably like two years old in here and he's they have him in a dress i I don't know why (laughs) maybe his sister's In chapter three, we're introduced to a couple things. One is his grandmother and the strong role his grandmother had in his life, and particularly the pushing of his family and particularly his grandmother to move him towards a religious education. So his early education, you know, in the previous chapter was just about like the books and his relationship with his mother and things. But now we start to get a more formal kind of, directed education pushed by the family and that's pushing him towards a life in the church and a in a religious life for him. And now that's there's both prop spiritual reasons for that, but there are also good kind of economic reasons for that. Being a preacher was one of the middle class jobs available to black people in in the later nineteenth century. When the black middle class was still fairly small in the United States and one of the places you did have this upward mobility was in in religious work and in teaching. So. That might be part of the reason for it, but the way he remembers it is much more that they wanted him to pursue this religious life, particularly his grandmother. Quote, it was during this period that she disclosed her consuming ambition, her ambition for me to become a preacher. She lived until I was 30 years old and I believe she never felt that I had done other than to choose the lesser part. She took me to Sunday school each week and to some of the church services. I was practically living at my grandmother's when there came a revivalist to Ebenezer. She attended the meetings every night, talking me along with her, taking me along with her. always walking the distance of about a mile each way. Sometimes that homeward mile in my short legs seemed without end. In those revival meetings, the decorum of the regular Sunday services gave way to something primitive. And then he talks about the the nature of of worship in this in this community at these revivals, and it's kind of a, n- a nice little slice of Americana if you're interested in in African American religion and how it's experienced and how it was performed, at least at least in this revivalist. It's just a nice little vignette of of American religion, I think, and it's always interesting. Now the fact that you know Johnson is most well known for that kind of African American hymn, "Lift Every Voice and Sing." He's not a religious person, though he really didn't seem to none of this religious education stuck to him in any significant way, but he certainly knew the Bible and he knew religion and he knew the place of religion in among African-Americans and its centrality. So I think he has an interesting relationship with black Christianity and certainly the roots of that are in his youth when his parents were, or his grandparents in particular, his grandmother was trying to encourage him to become a church member and eventually to become a preacher it's also interesting that james was attracted to kind of the musical aspects of of re- the religious life not and that's what he talks about in there the, the revivals was it's more musical aspects of it and of course he's going to become such a successful and important musician that um you know it's just maybe the roots of that was in his experience with with black christianity in in the south so as chapter four opens, we're told that his religious experiences preceded any experience of race. And before he had a consciousness of race, he had a consciousness of, of religion, and that shouldn't perhaps surprise us. Um, where does he get this consciousness of race? Well, it starts to creep into his life with his with his education. And this is very much like the ex-colored man who first is told he's black by the school principal, right? When he, If you remember back to that book, at one point the principal asks all the white kids to stand up and he stands up and he's told by the principal no you have to sit down you're not white so but when he moved from just be having his brother as a playmate to having a broader network of of friends he starts to experience a broader so- social life white and black and and that's partially where his consciousness of of, of race comes from it's really is it's a social relationship obviously and it's you know it's something that's learned as you develop in society like everything else now he's a very active child in terms of playing in games and he's also very athletic he plays baseball um, he plays other games um, and he's very much part of of kind of the community the school life and especially its athletic sides and you know he's got both white and black classmates in his school. So he's interacting with them. And especially, there's a lot here about baseball, if you're interested in baseball. It's a little bit of a a tiny, a few pages anyways, a little memoir on childhood baseball, which is always fun to read. Now there's a moment when he's 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 a pitcher, right? And he strikes out 16. And if you don't follow baseball, that's a lot, right? Striking out 16. You get 27 outs, right? So to strike out 16 of them is... Pretty impressive. And again, we kind of get this lesson about race that he's exposed to. Um, quote, one of the most interesting spectators of the game was a man named Haynes Spearing. He was a colored sport and said to be the best dressed man in Jacksonville. He loudly declared that the whole thing was a hoax, a physical impossibility, merely an optical illusion or words to that effect, and offered to bet that it could not be demonstrated. I couldn't cover his bet but offered to give him a demonstration free of any risk on his part. I did what I often did. Done in practice, and what I was confident I could do, 95 out of 100. A group followed us to where two trees stood, 10 or 12 feet apart. I took my stand in line with the trees, and about 50 feet apart, I stripped a couple of feet, to, stepped a couple feet to the left, and threw the ball so that it passed to the right of the first tree between the two, and out of the left on the second. Q.E.D. That's nice. Also, the the practicing to be a pitcher, finding the two trees that were close together, and then trying to throw the strikes in the middle. I I never thought of of that is a way of young people learning how to pitch, but I'm sure he wasn't the first to, to think about it. In chapter five, he talks about how he takes a trip to Nassau to his, his mother's birthplace, and he learns a little bit about that he had a younger sister who died, and he, he learns a bit about that. That He also gets exposed to British sports because of course the Bahamas were British, and he learns about about cricket and the people he talks to there don't know about baseball and it's again if you're interested in kind of the experience of sports and, and sports memoir we get a little bit of that here and you know Johnson was such a prolific person and he was so talented in many things he he could have it sounds like he could have been you know known as an athlete had he pursued that path or just a musician and he really was able to do so much with his life i think it's 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 really impressive and i think that gives some value to along the way even though i still think it's a little bit too long you know, when you kind of go through it, it, it's it's not unpleasurable to to read a lot of these stories. There's a lot of great moments. That that's what I that's what I get away from this. is a lot of nice little moments. For instance, in the same chapter where he talks about Nassau, he talks about kind of historical memory. He's back in Jacksonville at this point, and he talks about how the Civil War is remembered and how Reconstruction is remembered by the community. And there are these kind of popular celebrations where general grant is praised where kind of civil war veterans come out and there's these these speeches and these kind of big ceremonies and this was part of how kind of the historical memory of the civil war was remembered among black people now remember if you know anything about the historiography of the civil war and at the end of the 19th century it was much more focused on Reunion than the racial narrative of what the Civil War is about. In fact, there's a great book on this called Race and, Relu- race and Reunion by a historian named Bright. I think his name is. And he, he makes this long argument about the memory of the Civil War in the 19th century and how it really became remembered as a war of brother against brother or kind of a family spat rather than a, a war about race and slavery and, and overcoming the original sin of the of, of America you know and this uh, part of this is of course the remembering of reconstruction as a as a misguided effort and all of this is remembered differently by black people so that's what we got to remember yeah white historians were writing one narrative and it wasn't just they didn't have to wait until du bois wrote black reconstruction in america to have a different historical memory of of the civil war it was actually being lived and experienced by black communities in the south and they did it in a variety of ways and we get a little bit of a an image of, of just one way that was being done in this chapter, chapter five of the part one of, of Along the Way. And the subjection actually ends with a really great reflection on race relations and class and how they interact and, and kind of get to the question of why white Southerners, poor white Southerners, backed so aggressively white supremacy, even when they didn't seem to really benefit as much from it as perhaps the Southern Capitals class and here's what he writes quote in this epitome in, in the in this epitome is one of the paradoxes of American democracy that the Negro had to wear with we were told and we tell ourselves that as a race we belong to the proletariat and that our economic and political salvation lies in joining hands with our white fellow workers notwithstanding it is true that the black worker finds getting into most of the white labor unions no easier than getting an invitation to a white bourgeois dinner party there is another fact that bears interesting Lee on mr. Alexander's theory perhaps to confirm it further, a fact that must strike every observant person who goes through the deep rural South. Among the white people in these regions, people who have not yet tasted social or political power, nor yet possessed the rewards of industrialism, or come within its brutal field of competition, active antagonism against the Negro is lowest. So low indeed that it would probably die out if it was not continuously and furiously stirred by the working classes and the politicians. By the working classes determined to hold certain grades of work for white men only and by politicians bent on preserving their rotten oligarchy by keeping alive the sole political issue upon which the solid South rests. An important part is played also by those intellectuals who write to uphold the present status, many of whom are, I know, conscious that the system is unjust and uncivilized, but are too timid to oppose or even question it. Their termidity often sinks to pulsanimity. So a lot there. I don't know if I agree fully. I mean, there is this argument that Racism was held up by the white working class and then there's this argument that that's David Roediger if you're a historian and follow that kind of stuff but then there's these arguments to I think Brian Kelly makes a bit of this argument in his book on the coal fields of, of Alabama that it was more of the machinations of the capitalist class that 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 use racial tensions to break up unions and to destroy working class cooperation across, you know, interracial unionism. So I don't know. Johnson here seems to suggest that there is kind of a deep-seated resentment and jealousy and guardedness of white working class people for their jobs. That makes them in some sense worse than perhaps a more educated class that may have got um, beyond race a little bit sooner. So, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what the exact answer to it is. I just know that there's different points of view here and Johnson seems to be supporting one of them. All right, chapter six is a rather long one. It, he goes to New York in this chapter and he spends quite a lot of time there and he his, his education on race is certainly expanded. He's about 13, 12, 13, 14 at the time he's doing this. He, he's spending this time in New York City. He's visiting like his family members up there. And he also starts to get his musical education while he's in New York City. It's also in here where he gets his first job. He or his, I don't know if it's his first, but I think it's the first he talks about. And he's basically, a, you know, a delivery boy for the Times Union, and he makes two fifty a week doing that. He had to get up at four a.m. every morning and do that. And he actually took Rosamund, his brother, to help him with that. But he starts to make money no sorry that, that that times union that's in jacksonville sorry so he was in new york for a while like for a summer then he went to jackson back to jacksonville and that's where he got his first job as this delivery boy and later on he was like an office boy for the editor so he he started to get exposed to the field of of journalism and he starts to get a new fascination for the print and for this and so this conflicts with the goals of his grandmother in particular that he'll become a a preacher and in fact he remembers at this time that at the same time he was kind of saying maybe this is for me maybe the written word maybe the press maybe journalism is for me that's at the same time his grandmother is pushing more and more aggressively for him to join the church and become a preacher So in terms of what this means for an autobiography is, of course, a young person coming to realize what they want out of life and how that conflicts with what the family wants. And part of maturation then, of course, is standing up for one's own opinions and and finding one's own path in life and not merely accepting the dreams of, of of his family. So in chapter seven, we start to get his his college education, and I'm going to start to speed up a little bit to to get to the end of part one, um, but actually there's a lot still to say. His His college education, he got an early start in it. He actually went to Atlanta University, which is where he eventually graduated from, but he entered into, while he was still in high school, he entered into a college preparatory program. So he actually spent something like six or seven years connected to Atlanta University, and... Now, on their trip to... Well, yeah, they're going with a, with another boy named Ricardo, who kind of goes on this ad- adventure with him to Atlanta University. He, he has this experience on the train, and there's a couple experiences actually re- recounted in part one of this autobiography about the train. And I'm just reminded of how often the train becomes this place where racial conflict and racial educations take place. It, it happens to the ex-colored man in, in that novel, and you can guess that Johnson was thinking about these events when he wrote about them in X Color Man, because he's certainly they're on his mind when he wrote his autobiography. You saw the same kind of incidents though in in Charles Chestnut's work and Claude McKay, Back to Home to Harlem, which I looked at like over a year ago. And I think Du Bois talks a few times about the, the impact of the training on, on reinforcing racial racial boundaries and usually what would happen in these stories and it's the same thing that that happens i yeah i think it's in it's in the mirror of tradition by chestnut you know you have a black man in like the first class car who's told no you have to go to the colored car and then there's like resistance to this and then eventually a realization that you're going to have to go and so what we get there is like this event this trip reinforced Race and it becomes the first moment of resistance for Johnson to actually not just be aware of racial difference and its importance in American life, but actually to try to stand up for himself and try to resist it. Whether it's successful or not doesn't really always matter. It matters that you're getting these calisthenics, you're getting training in resisting Jim Crow. And it happens very early. And I think there's a lot more to maybe be said about how resistance to Jim Crow was taught. You know i think there's people have written about how you know acceptance to things like slavery and jim crow get taught to young people but perhaps resistance is also something that's taught and that's what i was thinking of when i when i read this so he he enters this program at atlanta university which is essentially a college prep program and it it goes on for a while and he does a lot of physical labor and physical like manual labor kind of training he learns also how to be articulate and that's actually describes as one of his big shortcomings when he entered this program was he wasn't very really good at public speaking so he got a lot of training in that um, so he goes through this program and then he leaves atlanta and he goes back to jacksonville and now he's in a group of four people and again they have an incident in In the train car, another humiliating incident. And here's what he says of it. Quote, I've since been through a number of experiences with Jim Crow. These experiences have always stirred bitter resentment and even darker passions in my heart. In two incidents, however, the ridiculous aspect of the whole business was shown up so glaringly that notwithstanding the underlying injustice, all sense of indignation was lost in the absurdity of the situation. In 1896, I was returning to New York to Jacksonville from New York to Jacksonville. I went by steamer to Charleston and from there to Jacksonville by train. When I boarded the train at Charleston, I got in the first class car. The car was almost full, but I found a seat to myself, arranged my luggage and seated down comfortably. The conductor took my ticket quietly and they made no reference whatever to the fact that the train carried a special car for me. A while later, however, he came to me and said that I would have to go into the car forward. His manner was not objectable. In fact, it was rather apologetic. I asked him why he replied that it was, we just crossed the Georgia line and that it was against the law in Georgia for white and colored people to ride the same railroad car, end quote. I mean, that's what's fascinating about the trains is, you know, you, these interstate rails, and that's why Plessy versus Ferguson was a test of Jim Crow laws at first, because it was inter, interstate, therefore the Supreme Court would have a say over it, yeah, the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. But also it's an interesting just as a social experience where someone in the North could buy a first class ticket and be perfectly legitimate in the first class car. But then once it crosses the state line, then the cars become colored and white or first class. There would be first class white, coach white, and then the colored cars. But it, the only thing that changes is the border, right? And then the law changes. And so it's, You know, that's just just an aspect of this that maybe we don't always think about, but certainly was something that millions of people would have experienced over the years. And I guess going the other way, too, you know, when you go north, those laws no longer apply. Just what this meant to undermining and, you know, and and the story of resistance. How many people did, you know, without talking back, go to the colored car just because they crossed the state line? So, anyway, this is chapter eight in Along the Way of Part 1. And he talks all about the cars and the train, the experience on the trains. And it's something he thinks a lot about. It's something he includes in autobiography Next Colored Man. So, and it's something other writers have explored. So then he goes, he goes home. In chapter nine, he's he's returning home, and after this kind of college prep program in Atlanta. And he's basically continuing his education on his own over the summer. He's reading Caesar. He's reading Cicero. Um, he's also reading like "Rights of Man," "Age of Reason," "Age of Reason." Sorry, not "Rights of Man," but "Age of Reason" by Thomas Paine, which is s- striking because it is a, a a book of a book about atheism. I actually, covered that in this podcast about a year ago. Now, th- after he returns from Atlanta he's home for a while and he he works with this white doctor a man named thomas osmond summers in jacksonville and he is the one who kind of encourages him to continue his education to encourage him to read all this kind of the classics and these enlightenment thinkers and things like that and it's actually this particular this character mr dr summers seems to have had a big role in him choosing a path of agnosticism i don't think he ever came out fully as an atheist but he did become out as as an agnostic, and later on, when he learns that this Dr. Summers kills himself, it does seem to have a pretty profound effect on him. Someone he he describes as a kindred spirit to his own, um, so very much a, a mentor, someone who encouraged him to have a to to read, to continue his education, and gave him this chance, you know, to work in a professional capacity in a in a in a doctor's office. It it seems to have meant a lot to him, and he he has a whole chapter about that those experiences. And then in chapters ten and eleven, we basically get a very quick description of his of his time at Atlanta University. He comes back, joint, enters as a freshman, you know, and eventually gets his degree. Now, a lot's going on in his life here. So Rosamond, meanwhile, is also getting older and starts to start making education choices. He goes to New England Conservatory of Music to study. So he becomes much more a full-time musician than James Johnson does, although both are musically quite gifted. But Rosamund chooses the, the musical career. Johnson, in Atlanta, he gets opportunities to teach school in, in Henry County. So he goes to the countryside like many educated black people did, um, teaching in these schools. Some of, I don't know if this one was a Freedmen's Bureau school, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. He starts to publish. He works in the printing office for a while. He even meets Booker T. Washington at one point. He publishes poems. And eventually he does receive his BA degree um, and he earns it with honors. Um, now, he wasn't publicly given distinction but he did graduate with with distinction nonetheless now he he has some thoughts about what college meant for him and what education means for for black people and i just think it's interesting to look at these words to compare to the stuff that du bois stressed about education quote i frequently leave i frequently live again my days in atlanta and now the hardship that once appeared so huge have naturally dwindled to infinitesimal proportions. Indeed, I have to brush away the glamorous haze in order to see things as they appeared to me then. Grown older, I occasionally meditate upon the kind of education Atlanta gave me. The conception of education there held and at other Negro colleges belonged to an age that probably is passing never to return. The central idea embraced a term that is now almost a butt of laughter, service. We were never allowed to entertain any thoughts of being educated as go-getters. Most of us knew that we were being educated for life's work as underpaid teachers. The ideal constancy helped up, held up to us was education as a means of living, not of making a living. It was impressed upon us that taking a classical course would have an effect of making us better and noble and a higher value that we should have to serve. An odd, old-fashioned, naive conception? Rather. End quote. So he's lamenting that he wasn't Educated to be rich and successful and prosperous. That wasn't even part of the, the subtext of it. And if we think back to Du Bois, he says there's kind of there's education for the career, and that's not that important. Really, service is more important. So he's talking about Du Bois here. Maybe not directly, he doesn't mention him by name, but he seems to be talking to people like Du Bois who saw education not as a means of, of personal uplift and prosperity, really, material wealth in the terms of material wealth, but as a way of, of feeding into service to help the race, right? And he somehow, he seems to be resenting it looking back at this part in his life. By the way, I forgot to mention this. The, Along the Way was published in 1933. So it's he's had a lot of time to think about these things. So I guess that's it. Um, that gives you a good idea of what's in part one of, of Along the Way. It, it's really not, it's, it's worth taking a look at. I don't know if it's worth reading cover to cover every word, but it has great moments in it. And I think it, especially a lot of the vignettes and the, the slices of life we get and some of the thoughts that Johnson reflects on about education and race and especially his kind of call, his, his talking back to people like Du Bois, I think is significant on the terms of, on, on the purpose of education and the feeling that he wasn't being educated for, you know, to be a success, but rather to be a servant of, of the race. So that, that will do it for this episode. I, I'll have three more, ep- three more episodes where I'll look at the other parts of, of along the way, where we'll start to look more at his, his political life, his effort to be, you know, how he becomes a lawyer how he becomes an activist and some of his musical writing and musical work too and his collaborations with Rosamond. so he's going to do a lot do a lot with his life and uh and we'll have access to all those events and my, many of them at least in parts three four and five of along the way so I hope you join me to hear my comments on that and if you have access to along the way take a look at it and and give me you know let me know what you think of it if you have your own comments on it please share them with me i would love to hear from you so again thanks for listening and thanks for supporting this podcast and i'll see you next time with part two of my comments on james weldon johnson's autobiography along this way